Hey, welcome back to CCL's podcast, Lead With That. We talk current events in pop culture to look at where leadership is happening and what's happening with leadership. Disaster often strikes without warning, leaving devastation in its wake. But what defines the human spirit is our ability to rise from the ashes, to rebuild, and to come together as a community stronger than ever before. And leadership and leaders are critical to making that happen. Starting in the beginning of August and running through just this past weekend here in the second week of September, three massive natural disasters have devastated the communities and cities of Lahaina and Maui, the Atlas Mountain region in Morocco, and coastal eastern Libya. These places have experienced the fury of wildfire, earthquakes, and floods, testing the resolve of these communities and their people. But it wasn't nature alone that contributed to the devastation we're seeing in these places. And it won't be nature at all that pulls these communities back together, but the people and the leadership uniting to do it. Through the darkness and the dust, we want to shine a light on some of the things that are happening in these places with these leaders and with the people who have to live through all of this. Today, we'll look at how leaders navigated the chaos when disaster struck, what lessons we can learn from their experiences to avoid catastrophe in the future, what conversations and actions could have happened and been taken to avoid these things in the first place, And most importantly, how can we empower individuals and institutions to lead effectively during these critical moments? Welcome back, everyone. I'm Ren Washington, and as usual, I'm joined with Allison Barr. Allison, have you ever experienced a natural disaster? No. The closest I came to it was uh, in July, leading a program here in Colorado Springs, and There were 18 people in that group, I think, and all of our phone alarms went off at the same time for a tornado warning, um, a severe tornado warning. And it had been ominous looking outside. But if you've ever been to Colorado, you know how quickly the weather can change. And Mm -hmm. um, so that was the closest I ever came to it. Uh, During that time, someone sent me a photo of the tornado that was in question, and it was maybe 20 miles from campus and, and just decided to go east instead. So that was the closest I ever came. Mm-hmm. What'd you all do when that happened? Like when the alert beeped and everyone's phones started chiming in the room? Well, people were very casual. <laughs> I won't lie. People were very <laughs> casual and sort of turned off their phones and went about their business. And I, I said, hey, Y'all, we likely have to take this seriously, but keep doing what you're doing. And I'm going to contact our point of contact, who was Lisa at the time, to make sure I know what the right process is. And they said, okay, and just kept on going about their business. And sure enough, as I was looking for Lisa, Lisa was on her, uh, naturally, Lisa was on her way upstairs to to give us some information. So um, Uh the information was, we don't suspect it's coming our way. But here's the plan. If people are uncomfortable, people are uncomfortable. Here's the plan. And if should it come this way, keep your phone on you. I will text you. And if I text you, that means it's go time for the plan. Well, today, I think that's some of what we'll talk about how in any kind of situation or emergency, whether it's an organization or a team or a person, the most resilient entities out there are prepared for disaster. Sometimes we say things like anti-fragility where despite what happens, there are plans in place to mitigate things. And even if we can't plan for everything, are the right things in place to help us be successful? Yeah. And I think, well, and kudos to Lisa, if you're listening, um, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but 
Lisa was calm. And that's one of the keys that I think we'll get into when you're communicating um, plans for a disaster or that there's about to be a disaster. She was very calm and very clear in her communication. Here's what we will do if we need to do it. And you hear a text message from me, that means we're doing it. Do You know, what questions do you have? And pull me off to the side. She's not panicked. And I think, as I think about organizations and people that we've worked with, I'm pretty sure that every single workplace probably has an emergency response binder. And how often does that get looked at, right? So in theory, in theory, most organizations are probably planned in terms of do we have a plan for this? Yes, we do. It's in a binder somewhere. Yeah. And I wonder then even if there's a section in that binder that says, and when everything is broken and everyone's yelling at each right. other and everything's crashing around it, uh, turn to page six and then throw this thing out the window. <laughs> you know, because it's, it's interesting when we think about like human stress and strain in these situations, because you said she was cool, she was collected and staying calm, cool and collected in these things is not only challenging during, but then in the wake of these things, incredibly hard to stay present. And when we look at these disasters, which some could easily, and I think are fairly say catastrophes, mm -hmm. I think part of what we've got to navigate is that real human element of, it's easy in theory to say we've got a plan, but what happens when you watch someone's home get right. uh, swallowed up right in front of you by fire or water or by the ground, or you know that your family member uh, is elderly and stuck in that building mm -hmm. and there's nothing you can do. And and I think then we we can't lose sight of how easy it is for humans to fall prey to our body's natural mechanisms of survival. And then that might cloud some of those mechanisms of higher thinking and then maybe that calmness. Right. And, and it's interesting too, isn't it? Um, again, I, I was in a situation where it was, there might be a tornado, which is very different from an earthquake happening in the moment. It's, it's not even right. remotely close. And people's responses were very um, blase about it. Mine was too. And I admit that because Maybe elementary school failed me. I don't know. But I learned at a very young age that it's very rare for tornadoes to happen at high elevation. And, you know, my brain went to what are the chances of a tornado crossing over Pikes Peak, which is 14,000 feet? Probably not likely. Could happen, though. So anyway, it's interesting. And that'd be a scary image. Right? I know. I know. It's interesting. As you say, people's natural responses. And again, I acknowledge it's, there's a big difference between this might happen between we're in the midst of an earthquake right now. Yeah. And then I just can't help but think, and we've sort of broached this in a few areas, like someone's desensitization to these things mm -hmm. can naturally inhibit their behavior. I don't know if it's just your general awareness of nature phenomenon. It might just be like we are so inundated with high stress situations that we're thinking, oh, a tornado 20 miles away. I mean, I've had much more frightening things closer to me and then maybe we're not concerned or we're surrounded by these things so often that I think we might lose sight and take for granted of it. But I think when things happen like Lahaina and Morocco mm -hmm. and Libya and you see the things that happen, it can really snap it into focus. And, and so maybe taking a look at these three disasters separately, there's some themes that come up around like what happened, why it happened, both man-made and naturally made. But Maybe before we go into there, has any 
one of these natural disasters been like one that's been more forward in your mind, something that you more know more about? Is any one of them like, you know, not that much about like what's been your general awareness of these things and what's been happening? My gosh, my knowledge and my, I'd say my alarm went off with the Maui fire. My alarm went off for all of them, of course, but I live in an area where forest fires are very common. Yeah. Very, very common. The Waldo Canyon fire in Colorado Springs. I can't remember what year that was, but it devastated. You lived here, I think, at the time, right, Ren? Yeah, yeah. I was there. Yeah, yeah so yeah. devastated. How many lives? I don't know. Burned an entire site. Like, how many acres? Thousands, right? Thousands of acres. Yeah. It was yeah. so devastating. The, the, the whole front range, and then the next year, Black Forest. and mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was wild, wild fire seasons there for a couple mm-hmm. of years. And I, and I, of course, immediately thought of one of our colleagues with the Morocco earthquake. And... Ugh. I'm not sure how or when I got pushed news of the flooding in Libya, but I also wondered why I hadn't. So that was curious to me. But yeah. um, I, so to answer your question, I know bits and pieces about all three. What, what about you? Is anyone more interesting or more alarming? Or Well, there's a lot of alarming things around Lahaina. <laughs> and like that's probably the most I've seen because there's all this like controversy and then conspiracy swirling around maui and it's america and social media is wild i mean the libya thing it like just happened this weekend and it kind of just happened too around Mm -hmm. the morocco and i think you ask questions well why don't we hear about third world brown countries and the travails of them well i think probably because of what i just said but um i I don't know if it's it's just i think lahaina has been really curious because of the um and I don't even want to dignify some of the wild things that I'm hearing about it. But when I really dig into a lot of what happened and why it happened, you know, nature, and not just the fact that these were natural disasters, but the things that are happening in and around our climate and to our natural world were huge components of it. Mm-hmm. For the Haina drought, you know, like a, that regional drought for a long time, commercialization of wetlands, yeah. and then winds brought on by Hurricane Dora which then had all this high-pressure air that was already in a super dry and droughted area that super high winds came in, and all of a sudden there's fires in the highlands, and then power poles are being knocked down. And then before we know it, and the story of Lahaina, in just like a day, in just a day, that fire started happening from a neighborhood north on the hill (laughs) all the way down to the water. And it's wild to think by, on the 8th, I think, it started, and then by Wednesday, just a day later, really Lahaina is nothing more than ash. 2,700 buildings restored, hundreds more damage, more than 100 deaths confirmed, more than 1,000 people still no. unaccounted for. Yeah. And you just see the people, the locals there who are talking, and and then talking about how like they, they don't have internet, they don't have power. Mm-hmm. I saw this one woman say, you know, everyone knows what's happening here except us. So how do you lead through crisis when the people who you're trying to lead can't hear or see you. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I want to clarify that, you know, CCL is not in the work of environmental crisis at the moment. Yeah. Right. So I don't know that I can speak to what they should, what they specifically should do differently, but we can speak broadly to it. I mean, we talk about crisis leadership at CCL communication is, there, there are five. There are five components of crisis leadership. We'll get into later, I'm sure. But communication is number two. 
And so even if you don't know, you have to communicate and you need to be visible with people. And what's interesting too about about Hawaii and like digging a little bit deeper, they went from averaging one federally declared fire disaster every nine years. And that was since 2004. So there's a, I was reading an article by a scientist named Clay Trowernick. And I, I might have butchered your name, so apologies. Um, but he's a, sorry, he's Clay. a nature and a fire scientist in Hawaii who was quoted saying that, uh, you know, Hawaii has had fires, small, small fires for the past 20 or 30 years. However, climate change, of course, is making all of this harder. And his prediction is that Hawaii will be having explosive, I'm quoting him, explosive fire behavior. And it's the perception of risk in Hawaii that's been generally low that needs to shift. So I think there can there's something in there about looking at trends and looking at like data and trends of what's happening. Even at it, you can look at that at an organizational level too. And if things are escalating, even if they're small things, but they're starting to escalate and get bigger and bigger, that's something to look at and prepare for. Yeah, and I think that preparation is exactly a big trend that we start to see here is a recognition that there might be trends or issues that are occurring should we create some SOP, some standard operating procedures that we know that are abundantly clear or have a series of redundancies? You know, something yeah. that happened in Lahaina was that without power, that people's cell phones and energy was down. There was no TV. There was no radio. And there was a reticence then to uh, blare the uh, sirens, which typically you may have seen like the emergency re director of the emergency yeah. response was kind of responded to a... Um, a reporter or or rather just a, a community member saying, hey, why didn't we put the sirens on? And he said, we didn't turn the sirens on because those are tsunami sirens. People uh, go to high ground when we do that. Yeah. And we didn't want people to run to the mountain. And when I look at the timeline and then that guy also later, he's since resigned. He also said, I wish all the sirens went off. But it's interesting, like if we just had a backup plan, let's pretend that in an event where there is a natural disaster, uh, we blow this when there's no other form of communication. What would that look like? How could we prepare and communicate so we can fill in that gap even when communication can't happen? Right. It's tricky, isn't it? Because, you know, Hawaii hasn't historically been known for mass forest fires. And so when I think about it from an organizational level, or or even my example of tornadoes, like Colorado is not known for tornadoes. They they lose speed. There's too many mountains, right? But given the nature of things that are starting to trend and patterns that are changing, is it something that we need to take more seriously, right? So even if those alarms sounded, and I don't know, right? Like even if those alarms sounded, I just wonder if people still would have been slightly casual about it because they're not necessarily known for having devastating forest fires. So I, I only offer that to consider like, how do we change people's reactions but also not cause a panic if there doesn't need to be a panic. I acknowledge that in Hawaii there needed to be a much bigger response, of course. But if you look at patterns, organizational patterns, how do you get people to respond to something that they consider to be very low risk for their area or their organization? Yeah, and I think you're highlighting the real tension that that exists in this space where hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah. You know, people were saying, God, if we only had a little bit more warning, but mm -hmm. you raise a really interesting point. It's like, but how would you even know what the warning was to mean? Especially as fast as things were moving, 
like people in the morning. And so like the Lahaina fire, I'm doing air quotes, our favorite thing, everyone. The Lahaina fire it was known it was just a small fire up, up in like the northern part of Lahaina in a neighborhood after a pole had fallen. And then later in the afternoon, fire had jumped the fire line. And then before like the night was out, neighborhoods were engulfed. And so this, yeah. there's like this all of a sudden this sudden urgency that that caught people so unaware. And there is something to say about that or see about that where and it's not even like what we're doing in the moment, but how do we manage afterward? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's sort of what happened in Morocco where we got a 6.8 magnitude earthquake. There's no siren that you're going to put off when that's kind of happening. And then 20 minutes later in the high Atlas Mountains in the Marrakesh area all the way to the coast, uh, there was a 4.9 aftershock. Right. So out of like a 10-point scale, they had a 7 and then they had a, a 5. Right. And and like immediately out of the like almost and the the death toll now is up to almost three thousand, uh, just in an area near that high Atlas region. Then another maybe like seventeen hundred in the Al Hawz. I can't say that exactly the right region, but just so much life in a moment kind of gone. And what we're seeing in Morocco, I was listening to one scientist reflect, or rather a civil engineer, and she was talking about like. Where there aren't earthquakes, you don't prepare for earthquake. Right, exactly. And that's like just what you were saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, so it's tricky, right? So it is such a tension because there's, I want to be cautious how I frame this. Um, There are communities who don't believe in certain things, right? And they do perceive messaging and uh, I'll leave it at that messaging to be a fear, fear mongering. And so it becomes really, really tricky. It, it's very, very tricky. And, and I think the root of all of that is trust, right? So if I trust my leader, I'm going to believe them when they say it's time to go hunker down in the basement, right? I don't care what you believe right now. It doesn't matter. You go to the basement. <laughs> doesn't matter what's happening out the windows right now. I'm telling you, like, this is what we're doing. So it's, it's tricky. Well, uh, very tricky. And trust, I mean, trust is gone right. in Lahaina now in Maui. Right. Like, there's no trust right. of the mayor. There's no trust of the governor. Trust in Morocco is interesting because the country and, and other countries have pretty quickly united because the earthquakes aren't entirely uncommon in Morocco, just very uncommon for where it happened here. Mm-hmm. It's more typical to happen, like, in the northern part. And so there, it's just kind of these ideas of could there be more preparation in environments where we know earthquakes are happening. I mean, they lost ancient buildings, but a lot of modern buildings after, I think, a big earthquake in 2016 in Morocco, they've been built differently. Man, a lot of them are still standing. But Libya is interesting because you talk about trust, right? We know Libya since 2014 has just been a splintered, ruined country, fractured government. They've got an internationally backed government, and they've also got a local supported government an extremist part but it's hard to trust these these entities especially when infrastructure is key to survival you know a big thing that happened in libya was a tropical storm or a big storm cell mm-hmm. another storm cell which is just so wild storm daniel comes in and massive amount of rain falls over the whole region for a long time and then it turns into i think like a smaller version of a hurricane hits the edge of Libya, this rainfall, unsurmountable rainfall comes, and then these two dams break one after another at three o'clock in the morning. And so there's just these individual reports of being woken up by this loud crash, and then a wild high 23-foot 
wave of water washed through this city, Derna, in eastern Libya. And the pictures from the satellite of where there were buildings and where they're not, it's massive. Yeah. There's over 11,000 people that died mm-hmm. almost in an instant. 30,000 people are displaced. And so, you know, you talk about trust. And I'm a person in Libya thinking, oh, I'm going to trust this broken group of men here. Right. Who, and make no mistake about it, it's a broken group of men up there who have no idea what the hell they're doing and who aren't really interested in me. But then someone's like, hey, we should fix these dams. And we're like, sure thing. You're just going to put money in your pocket. So, so how do I trust something that's untrusting when I'm in crisis all the time? Right. Yeah. And that, that's, that's a question that goes much deeper that we probably won't get into, I don't think. But it's putting the right people in leadership again. And, and I'm simplifying this is very complicated when it comes to government. But if we translate to, that to the workplace, right, like you've got to have the right people in the right places. So if we could, again, just like I know we are not comparing apples to apples here. But if we translate that to an organization, the right leaders have to be in place. And um, trust is part of that skill set, of course, is as well. And a lot of organizationals by design have risk management that, you know, looks at risk in a lot of different ways. But when we're talking about um, crises in organizations, like these are relatively low probability, but high impact situations that threaten competitiveness. So we're not talking about um, swallowing 11,000 lives in over the course of an evening, yeah. right? It's different. So yeah, I, I can't, I wish I could answer the question that you asked directly regarding specific countries and locations, but I can't. But when you think about it from an organizational level, it's like you people who are going to have to handle crisis better be trustworthy people. Yeah. And I think you say something that's interesting. Also, the right leader in the right place. And for these mm-hmm. areas like Maui, Morocco, Libya, they require different leadership. They have different cultures. They're going to need different things. Right. And so I think then we, we implicitly understand that. And so when I think we cast the vision forward, it's, uh, the, the question is going to be, how do we lead in a couple of different places. You know, when I think about leadership development, I think one of the first things that leaders need to do in a situation like this, and this one might be pretty broad, and it's even some of our newest framework at CCL, this idea of human-centered leadership. <laughs> now, we've always been a human-first organization, but we've got this great frame and reminder around the premise that leadership is the interaction of people, that the world is the interaction of people, and human-centered leadership drives outcomes. And so I think anything that a leader can do in these situations is control that part of them that gets defensive and wants to fight. And and it's the hardest thing in the world, I think, for a leader to have that uh, aggressive accountability that manifests itself as quietly listening mm-hmm. and just taking the feedback. Like no one needs to hear the, the, the governor of Maui when they're trying to like talk about how people are hurting or dying, this uh, pushback around like challenging the idea. I think that Maybe at first, we need to seek understanding in areas of crisis so we can start to identify where people are hurting so we can start to address what we might do to, to ail or to, to aid in their pain. Yeah, I think you're right. And when leading through crisis, too, I think that most leaders are probably forced to think and behave in ways that feel pretty unfamiliar. Yeah. And whether it's you know a technological crisis, natural disaster, health crisis, et cetera, these types of crises demand that leaders take an emergency response plan 
that is different from leading my boss leading us as a team, right? Like yep. his he, his ability to have to take an emergency response plan is not in his day to day. That's understandable. And and he very well might have to adapt it as new evidence unfolds and things constantly change. So it is it's hard. And I think that that's okay to acknowledge that, right? But at what point do you need to equip leaders to be prepared for emergencies, right? I don't think a lot of organizations spend time on this. And I just want to clarify too, some of the examples of organizational crisis that are not environmental in nature, it can be something like a data or security breach, a failed product campaign. There's a really good example that we can talk about from Johnson & Johnson, where they put out Tylenol, this was in the 80s, they put out Tylenol and their containers for the Tylenol at that time were not tamper resistant. So someone at this grocery store put cyanide in with the Tylenol. Yeah. So anyhow, their response was textbook and, and actually uh, has led some of the research and has led some of the responses that companies take now. But anyhow, I think we need to like ground in what this can look like aside from an environmental. Um, it can also be like a really big fail in a marketing campaign or an ad campaign. Pepsi is an example of that. Kendall Jenner from I think sure. that was 2017, maybe. Uh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But yeah, anyhow. Diversity. She yeah. was hip. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're right. And I, I don't think we need to sit in the natural disaster thing necessarily. Okay. And I think now as we shift our attention to leadership, something that I think is important, I'm curious to hear your point of view on is, is it important to have emergency charisma? You know, I think about command and control, right? In these instances, there's no time to do like, hey, let's let's have a quick conversation about how we should address this emergency. No, we have emergency okay. systems. We get into action. It's actually one of the things I think we in leadership development talk about all the time. Like sometimes dependent cultures, we call them people, which is there's a boss up top and they say it and then you do it. Right. You can think like defense and army and military structures or police and emergency systems. And so I wonder if it's appropriate sometimes to turn those dials on. There's an emergency. The Coast Guard needs our help. We don't need to debate. Is it also a time to turn on emergency charisma? Because sometimes I need a leader who is not the most bland, uncaring, disinterested or disinteresting person to remind me about how cold and sad and how miserable this is. Right. It's like this. It's a, it's a combination of all the executive presence. But maybe you should lean into your humanity in moments of sadness mm. as opposed to make yourself sterile. So I don't know. Is it like, what do you think about emergency charisma? I like the sound of it. Tell me what, what would that look like? <laughs> I do. I, I, I'd never heard it phrased that way. What would that look like behaviorally to you? I mean, you gave the opposite, but what, yeah. yeah what do you think that would look like? That's a, you know what? I appreciate the challenge as we do behaviorally driven. I think it would probably be practicing the skills of active listening, of focused and heartfelt restating of what you're hearing emotion first language probably probably inspirational first language too i bet you know i would say that when we talk about influence we talk rational persuasion we talk uh, inspirational persuasion and then things in between and i wonder you know at sometimes inquiry is really important seeking requests and asking what people need but maybe it's an advocacy first posture where like your charisma preparation is having something like being ready to not have to rely on your influential or inspirational muscles once, but have working them out. So when the time calls, you can tap into your, the human part of your communication. Yeah. I don't know. How, how, how does that work? Does that sound okay? Or Yeah. I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> I think that sounds great. And I think that can go missing. So, you know, we work with clients who have had 
some crises, some of it, some of the types that we've mentioned already. And I think being present and available too is very, very important. And some of what I'm about to mention comes from CCL's research and also a gentleman named Gene Klon who wrote a book on uh, crisis leadership. But that research states that it, it, this won't be a surprise to you, Ren, but employees have a need to hear from their leaders frequently. So I think sometimes leaders get worried about, well, I already said that thing and I don't want to over-communicate. Actually, it's the opposite. You need to do opposite of that yeah. instinct and over-communicate. And additionally, when leaders appear concerned, like you just mentioned, have some emotional intelligence and appear to be knowledgeable and calm, that is when workers will feel inspired and encouraged and more likely to have confidence that things are under control. So I think to resist the temptation to just communicate once and you actually do need to over communicate. And those employees who don't need to hear it just probably won't read it or won't listen. But there will be people who need more communication yeah. than you're used to giving. And who, yeah, who appreciate it, who are expecting it, <laughs> who, and there might even be people who don't need it normally, but then need it when crisis happens. Right. And I, 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 you're so right. No one has ever called me and be like, Ren, we talk too much. Help <laughs> us talk less. Right. And so it is interesting when we think about that kind of communication or that over communication. But then too, you, you, something you said reminded me, like, I don't want anyone to pretend to be emotional mm. or pretend to be human when they're not. Like, I would never tell someone who's a cold and calculated robotic person to like, pretend, like, do your best Mark Zuckerberg and look like a robot trying to inhabit a human, right? Like, that, <laughs> that's what Mark gets in trouble for because yeah. he's not that kind of guy, you know, but his handlers say, Mark, try to smile. And then he's like, ah, boop, boop, beep. And so I don't know if that's, I don't need a leader to be like, I'm sad when I'm not sad. Right. But I do think you said something interesting. It's the recognition, <laughs> like the emotional intelligence. It's this idea that, hey, when people lose everything, when I, for instance, lose my entire city overnight, and maybe I just happen to be across town at a friend's sleepover, and that's the only reason I made it. <laughs> in that moment, the leader just needs to demonstrate some understanding. And then I think even in the exercise of understanding, part of the human-centered leadership, I think, is a, a recognition of the human at the center of these things. And even the most hardened of us, I think, have the capacity for that human-first approach. Agreed. And transparency is also crucial. I remember one of my clients who I won't name was, um, this was last year, going through a very big riff and massive layoffs. And in one of our calls, he said, he said to our internal client team, he just said, I just need everybody to know, I need my leadership team to know that this is going to be hard and it's okay. This uh. is going to be hard and we'll get through it. And we just need to admit that. And something else you made me think of also comes from the book that I've already mentioned are the, and I really like this because it's easy to remember for me, at least the three R's of communication in crisis are, Review, repeat, reinforce. And you and I have talked about this before, Ren, but when information is scarce, people will fill in the blanks and then they'll talk to each other. Oh, yeah. And that's when problems really can happen. So when the types of assumptions, you know, surface and then start to spread, that can cause a lot of problems that didn't need to happen. I mean, I was just talking about this with a group of leaders and just how easy it is to misinterpret people's behavior. And that's in the best of circumstances <laughs> just like even if everything's going right for me and you wrong me oh man like lord knows well we already know i'm the hero or i'm the victim right but when i'm actually the victim 
and I don't have information, good luck recovering. And that's, I think we're actually seeing that. So it's been a month since Lahaina. And basically like it's, it feels from an outside perspective, like misinformation, disinformation, a lot of static, unmoving things. And it's really interesting when we start to say, well, well, how do we get some clarity on what's happening? What does real transparency and communication look like? And can we just be honest about the shortcomings that can come up? You know, I think it's part of the way that we can stop telling stories about each other is just to admit that where we lost sight of things. Right. And and these a lot of these leaders need to say, I'm sorry. Yes. And we need to do better. And they need to freaking do that. And then they keep moving. Yeah, I mean, part of all of this, like you've already said, is is relationships. Let us not forget that we work with other human beings. And you've mentioned human-centered leadership many times here. And, you know, during crises, leaders who have built those personal, relational, like a foundation that's relational can then focus on the immediacy, right? Because they've already built that foundation of trust and they're, they're not having to backpedal. So that becomes really important to this is well before a crisis happens, is that leaders need to be somewhat relational. And I know there will be people who listen who cringe at that, but it doesn't mean, I'm not saying you need to be best friends with people. What I am saying is that you need to make sure you have a culture of trust at your organization because inevitably, at least once, your organization will have a crisis, at least once. If anyone's in a relationship you care about, you know how important trust Mm -hmm. is. Absolutely. And so when we're involved in in places where we live and work, it's critical for our our general success. And I don't know if this is a direct segue, and I know we're, we're rounding towards the end, but I just got to, I'm curious about this with you as we think about organizations, because I know we we're talking about environmental disasters or rather natural disasters. We shifted a little bit to the org focus, but the environment and the trends happening in and around our climate are are things that are going on right. and organizations in certain industries are going to really need to consider it. Real estate is a perfect example that that's a serious consideration, power, energy. These things are all going to have to navigate the shifting tide and sentiment of the environment around us. And so what do you think are ways that to leverage the crisis leadership or just any awareness that we have a leadership that how can a leader prepare for the environment? Gosh, that's tricky, Ren, isn't it? I I think doing due diligence as a leader, it's your responsibility to stay up to date on external factors that impact businesses. And there are a lot of leaders who do that already. But I I would say to take that very seriously and to look at some of the things that have gone on, maybe not in your immediate location, or maybe for some people it is in their location listening at this point, right? flooding, tornadoes, like those types of things have, have been happening for years. So what, you know, what is your plan aside from having your binder? How are you going to create that foundation of trust? And I would encourage people to really take seriously these, uh, I'll mention them. They're like the five components of crisis leadership, but we've mentioned almost all, all of them, if not, if not all of them, actually. The first one is to seek credible information. So by the way, this book was written in 2003, a very long time ago. And so as a leader, it's your responsibility to to make sure you're up to date on trustworthy information. So that means avoiding, um, you know, things that have a bias of varying degrees that might have inaccuracies, right? So number two is communication, which we've already talked about at great depth. 
Number three is to, within that communication, explain what the organization is doing. So even if you haven't had a crisis yet, you know, there's a lot going on in the world right now. It might be time for you as leaders to talk about that and think about what will we do? Mm-hmm. What will we do? Um, it's better to be ahead of those things. Um, the fourth one we've talked about, which is to be present and available. And the last one is maybe if you have not been through a crisis at your organization, maybe the most important, which is to dedicate resources. And that would include a budget for future crisis because you might not need it, right? You might not need it, but chances are you're likely going to have a crisis at it, at your organization at least one time. And I think that's the, that that's probably the trick and the challenge is to ingrain that truth into our realities and then create reflex responses to it. Mm-hmm. As we're talking about this, there's an interesting comparison around our general human imperative. A lot of us who are we're afraid of snakes. <laughs> Typically, we're afraid of snakes because they can cause us demise very quickly. Yeah. That's why out of the corner of your eye, especially as a Colorado, and when you're on the trail, you see a stick, looks like a rattlesnake, you move. Right. Like, you don't wait to check it out. You don't walk closer to it. You move away from it very quickly, and then you re- reevaluate. And so, but really in the reality is that we see a snake maybe one out of a hundred times, but a hundred times we're jumping and we're jumping for that one time. Right. And so how do we, I think as an organization measure your appetite and run the calculus for like, how do we react when we don't need to, how, like, what's a reaction so we can build it in our system. That's not disruptive to the business, but a real reaction that we can ingrain in ourselves. So when real crisis happens. We're not grabbing our hair and like, what the hell do we do? Right. But we know what's going on. And I mean, you see this in a lot of defense communities too, where they run drills, where where they go battle stations, people, and they practice this over and over and over again. Now, granted, those environments are different because we don't necessarily need battle stations at CCL, but I wonder how to balance that tension between repetition. So when disaster strikes, we reflexively know what to do. Right. And you're, you're reminding me of childhood, right? Stop, drop and roll. Like we had to practice that. We had to know that, right? We had to know where to take cover. I grew up in Pennsylvania. There actually were tornadoes, not in my area, but you know, in school we had to know where to go. And so we just knew those things because it's inevitable. And again, it might not happen. Like you said, Ren, you might see a snake unless you live in my house where there are lots of snakes frequently. (laughs) Don't come, don't come to my house if you don't like snakes. Um, Regardless, it's important to know what you should do. And there's a lot of this that is um, an individual's responsibility to know, because I, I guarantee you, if organizations put forward like a mandatory training for emergency response, even if it was like a recorded webinar, people, people are very busy. They probably won't take it very seriously. They, they might watch it, but are they going to retain it to your point? So how do you create a culture where these things become ingrained, um, you know? without creating panic at the same time it's tricky yeah and maybe that too is like a practical thing right now is if you all haven't yet as listeners or leaders or working in the organization start to ask yourselves not what the emergency plan is but what's our appetite for building in habits where we could respond like right are there habits that serve the business that we could start to ingrain that would also serve us in times of crisis and reminder too folks it doesn't have to be a natural disaster like right. Alison was saying. It's like real financial crisis or what happens when all of a sudden um, our systems go down and we have an, a, to execute on a product or a contract. It's these things that we go, oh, no. So can we build the muscles where I use it in times of good and in times of bad? Right. It's And it's again, it comes back to me to just that awareness. So it is a leader's responsibility to 
have that awareness, know what know what's happening in the world around them and those external factors that are starting, unfortunately, to become a little bit more common. And just because it hasn't happened to your business doesn't mean that it won't. So I think there's a bit of real yeah. realism that needs to occur and general awareness and, and starting there. That's right. Realism. It's, it's, it's something's coming for you. To pretend that it's not is a disservice to you and your people. Yes, indeed. Indeed. And again, not to create panic, but just, you know, we know what to do. We know what to do. Wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't you rather be prepared? So that you're not like me who did kick a stick recently and it was a snake. I thought it was a stick. I was walking the dog and I kicked a stick, air quoting stick. It was a snake. My dog didn't care. I freaked out. Anyway, everybody's fine. Right. Well, stay vigilant, people. <laughs> everybody's fine. So, Ren, what's one takeaway you think you can leave for leaders today? Yeah. Um, don't get discouraged. Because I was thinking about all this stuff and I was like, I don't know if anything's going to change. I don't know if, if anyone's incentivized to not let things like this happen because it seems to always damage the people who can handle it the least and the people who benefit <laughs> or the people who can handle it the most don't seem to be touched by these things. And so when I see all of this, for instance, like the Libyan government, for instance, I don't think they care because they're still fighting over power. <laughs> The Moroccan systems of structure, I think, you know what, actually, maybe if it's only one bright spot in all of this, it's the fact that because this is, the country is familiar with these things, there are some signs of proactivity. But and when I look around at what can sometimes be construed as maybe failures of ignorance or apathy, it can be really discouraging. But then I'm reminded of so I know, like I said in the beginning, that I see people working hard mm -hmm. everywhere I go, people rolling up their sleeves for one another and taking care of each other. And, and so try not to get discouraged. I'm trying not to get discouraged. Keep trying to take care of each other, I guess, is my takeaway. Yeah, that human-centered focus. So I'll, I'll add to that human-centered focus, which is so critical, is, is the communication piece, right? Like revisit those five steps of crisis leadership if you want. However, I would underline the communication piece. People have varying levels of need to knows, if you will, and there will be people who will panic if they don't hear from you. And when that happens and people fill in the blanks, your problems are about to get a lot worse. So over communicate, be transparent and just tell people what's happening and what you're up to as a leader. Yeah. And I think, Ren, what's interesting, I just think we could, as always, talk about this for uh, a couple of hours. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a big, yeah, especially this one. Yeah, it was a big topic. And with that said, I know we have to wrap, but you can find all of our show notes and all of our podcasts on ccl.org. And a big thank you to our CCL team behind the scenes who work very, very hard to get our podcast up and running. Yes, yes. And to our listeners, um, thank you for being here. Find us on LinkedIn. Tell us what you want us to talk about next. And as always, Ren, I'll look forward to our next one. Thanks, everyone. That's right. Thanks, Allison. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Find Allison on TikTok. Mm -hmm.